Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. One more time. This is an, an extremely important block of Scripture. Extremely important. This is the fourth sermon that we went through these verses. It'll be the last one before we move on, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's very, very important that we understand this. If you don't yet understand, you can go back on the ministry page on the internet and listen to the audio sermons, or you can actually watch the video sermons. That's something I've tried to do now for a little while, is put the sermons in video form with the charts on YouTube so that you can go back and and watch them and listen and look at the charts as well. So, you can do that or you can always ask me a question if you have a question. So, very, very important. I'm glad I got another opportunity to preach through these verses. And we'll read them today. Matthew five seventeen through 20 reading out of the World English Bible. Our Master and Savior says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For most certainly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even one smallest letter or one tiny pin stroke shall in any way pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And here's our text today, which covered verse 19 a little bit last week. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, There is no way you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. Last week we covered Matthew 5.19. And we talked about what are the least of the commandments. That equals commandments that might seem insignificant. And not only seem insignificant, there are certain commandments that carry less weight than other commandments. We talked a little bit about that. But the least of the commandments are not unimportant. They're less weighty than the greatest of the commandments. Do not murder is more important than put four tassels on your cloak. But that doesn't mean put four tassels on your cloak is insignificant or not important. We talk about least in the kingdom and how that that could mean in Matthew 5.19, whoever therefore shall break, now that word break from the Greek word luo could mean whoever therefore shall loosen. In other words, it's not someone that is unrepentantly breaking the law with a high hand, shaking their fist at Yahweh, but they're reading the law and they're loosening the commandment by misinterpreting the commandment. And so therefore, if they do that, Neglect it, misinterpret the commandment. They have a lower rank in the kingdom. They will be called least in the kingdom. And then we talked about those that are great in the kingdom. The more that I look at this, the more that I believe that this is what verse 19 is talking about. I think that Yeshua is speaking about positions, levels, or ranks in the kingdom. And it all hinges on how serious we are in regards to the commandments of Yahweh. 
I want you to take note that this is the least that Yeshua could mean in verse 19. Uh, there's another interpretation that I'll get to here in a moment that is more harsh of an interpretation of verse 19. And it could be the true way. The more that I look at it, the more that I meditate on it, and I think that what I taught last week is correct and the proper way to understand verse 19. But at the very least, Yeshua is saying that our relationship to His commandments, our teaching them and practicing them, determines whether or not we'll have a lower rank in the kingdom or a higher rank in the kingdom. And you can go back and listen to that sermon. I go in that in detail. So, today I'd like to talk about three things. Uh, number one, I want to talk about a question that people bring up when you teach on Matthew five seventeen through 20 like this. And that question is, what about the ceremonial laws? And the second thing I'd like to talk about is that least in the kingdom could mean that you will never enter the kingdom. That's a possibility. And then thirdly, I want to discuss how can our righteousness exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. What does Yeshua mean by verse 20? That unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses, goes beyond the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. What does He mean by that? Those are the three things we're going to talk about today. First, what about the ceremonial law? Biblical law is usually divided into three categories. Moral, civil, and ceremonial. For example, you may think of a moral law, do not murder, uh, do not commit adultery. Those are moral laws. Civil law means the judicial law, uh, the penalties for violating the law. Uh, for instance, if a person steals something from somebody, the penalty is that they are to at least pay back, if they're caught, they're at least to pay back double what they stole. Sometimes three, sometimes four, sometimes sevenfold. There are scriptures on that but there's restitution to be made. That's civil law. And then we have ceremonial law, which are things like uh, the Aaronic priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices. Um, some people place the dietary law as ceremonial or the tassels as ceremonial. Uh, that's debatable, but you kind of get the, the idea. So when you discuss Matthew five seventeen through 20, people will usually point out to me, when I talk to them about this, that surely Yeshua did not mean that He didn't come to destroy the ceremonial law. And some people neglect the civil law too. I don't, by the way. I believe that Yahweh's penalties should be the law of the land, um, no matter what land that we're talking about. I believe the penalties for violating the law should be the standard for the law of the land uh, as the civil law. But some people neglect the civil law of Yahweh. They think that's been done away with and the ceremonial law has been done away with. And we just go by the moral law. And conveniently so, people that usually teach this will determine or define which laws they deem as the moral law. So it really places you in the position of God because then you get to pick which laws are moral because as long as they're ceremonial or civil, they don't really matter. I don't think that that's proper. I want you to remember that we have established here in the context of Matthew 5 that Yeshua spoke of the law as one unit here. He did not speak of the law as categorical in the sense that we only are going to keep one category and dismiss a second or third category of law. 
And I prove that by looking at the words of Yeshua a little bit later in the chapter where He talks about that if we call our brother, you fool, or raka, which means you empty-headed moron, if you call your brother that, that you'll be in danger of the council. The word council in the HCSB is Sanhedrin. It's the council of elders in first century Israel that when you violated a law, a lot of times if it was too difficult for a local judge, you were brought before the ruling eldership in Jerusalem, Israel, the Sanhedrin, consisting of at least 70, some say 71 or 72 elders. And they would listen to the case, 70 wise men, and they would make a judgment upon you. And Yeshua says here, if you tell your brother these things, you could be having to go before the council of elders. That's civil law. So the context of Matthew 5 is civil law. And then ceremonial is in Matthew 5.23. He says, if therefore you are offering your gift on the altar, that's a sacrificial altar. The sacrifices, we're talking about animal sacrifices, sometimes vegan sacrifices. The grain offering was meatless. Uh, But the sacrifices listed in the book of Leviticus that Yahweh says are a sweet savor to Him. They're known as gifts to Yahweh in the Scriptures. Giving something of great worth. We know that the Israelites were raisers of livestock and they were agrarians. And I was telling somebody this week that one of the greatest gifts that an Israelite, an ancient Hebrew, could give to Yahweh would be that he had this great bullock and Yahweh blessed him so much this past year and he had this great bullock and it was his sire. It was his main one, the one that he used for breeding. It was the prettiest one and it weighed the most and it was healthy. And he looked out in that bullock and that's not one that he wanted to give up, but he made a sacrifice. And he went and said, let's get that bullock. Yahweh's blessed us so much this year, dear. Let's take that bullock and offer him up as a burnt offering to Yahweh. Yahweh loves that. It's known as a gift in Scripture. Our minds have been clouded and prejudiced against that in the Bible because of distorted teaching for many, many years. But I believe we can retrain our minds to think properly about Yahweh's commandments. How dare we speak of any of Yahweh's commandments negatively? How dare we talk about Yahweh's commandments that way? So Yeshua is not saying here, I didn't come to destroy the moral law, but I did come to destroy the civil law. Don't worry about the penalties. And I also did come to destroy the ceremonial law. That's not what Yeshua is saying. That's not how the listeners there that day would have understood Him. Now always remember, the Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. Okay. So when Yeshua spoke the words that day, we have to somehow transport ourselves back to the people that were listening to Him there on the mountain or high hill. And think about what would they gather from Yeshua's words. And when Yeshua said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, He's talking about anything that Yahweh commands. The whole body of law He didn't come to destroy. The point is, in Matthew five seventeen through 20 the listeners to Yeshua would have understood the law and the prophets as anything that Yahweh commanded, whether it be moral, civil, or ceremonial. When Moses came down off the mountain back in Exodus, the book of Exodus, he held in his hands the ten words or the ten commandments, the cubes of the covenant. I believe that they were not tablets out of granite like is on the picture. I believe that they were stones of sapphire. 
And I believe that's why Yahweh said, when you make the tassels, you put a ribbon of blue in it. Because the blue color reminds you of the sapphire stone of the commandments. Okay, So, uh, he comes down off of the mountain with these sapphire stones. And these commandments are not an exhaustive list of what we are to do. These commandments are a summary. If you remember, I taught a series going through all ten of the commandments. And the commandments are a summary of how we are to live. It's the commands in a nutshell. Okay, They're the foundation. It's not an exhaustive list. And even when we come to the Ten Commandments, guess what? A lot of people still call one of them ceremonial so that they feel like that exempts them from obeying that commandment. We know which one that is, right? Well, it's the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They say, oh, well, Brother Matthew, that's ceremonial, so I don't have to do that one, see? And I think that that's an excuse, you know, I think it's an excuse to just say, well, it's ceremonial. I don't believe it would matter if it was ceremonial. <laughs> but I think it's an excuse to try to say that's ceremonial, so we're not going to worry about that commandment. But Moses continued speaking. When he came off that mountain, he continued to speak in Exodus 21, Exodus 22, and Exodus 23. And then Yahweh spoke through him throughout the book of Leviticus, throughout the book of Numbers, and throughout the book of Deuteronomy, which means the second giving of the law. And all those times that Yahweh spoke through Moses and gave, gave him commandments, all of those commandments are just as legit as the ten upon the stones of sapphire. All of them are. The ten is just a good summary. Good summary of the law of Yahweh. Moses never said when he was talking, now hold up, this is the moral law. And then he spoke for five minutes and he said, alright, I'm changing gears, this is the ceremonial law. I don't think that it's wrong to see the law divisionally or categorically. I do think it's wrong to put it in categories in order to try to do away with some of it instead of doing like Yeshua told us and not thinking He came to destroy the law or the prophets. So, I myself and we as a whole keep some laws today that people deem to be ceremonial. For example, we wear, I wear, a lot of you wear the tassels. And we keep the Passover. And in keeping the Passover, we do offer up a Passover sacrifice of a lamb. Some people don't like calling it a sacrifice, but in Exodus chapter 12, I think it's right around verse 37, it says, when your child asks you, what does this mean? You are to tell him, this is the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh. So it is a sacrifice. It's a fellowship offering or a shalemim in, in Hebrew. So, when it comes to the tassels, people say, that's ceremonial. Brother Ron, don't you know that's the ceremonial law? Why are you wearing those tassels? Then you know, Yeshua came and now you have the law on your heart and on your mind. Why do you need a tassel to remind you of the law? Somebody says, why do you need, Matthew, a tassel to remind you of the law? Do you have a problem forgetting the law? My answer to that is, yes, I do. I do have a problem with forgetting the law. I still struggle with sin and I will until the day that I die. Because I'm in this flesh. No matter how better I may get at obedience to the law, I'll still have my struggles. I'll still have my days when I don't feel as spiritual as other days. Amen? Amen. I think that goes for all of us. So, I wear the tassels because every time that I look at the tassel, it reminds me to keep the commandments. Numbers 15, 37 through 41. And that I don't go astray after my own heart and my own eyes, that is my natural heart and my natural eyes that I was born with. So one of the arguments 
that people make against the tassels, and they say they're ceremonial, is that now under the New Covenant, which I don't believe we're fully under the New Covenant yet, but I do think it's begun. But now under the New Covenant, we have the law on the tables of our heart. So we don't have to look at the tassels anymore, right? And I heard an answer, and I can't remember who told me this. I don't know if it was Brother Orlando Smith, who I learned about the tassels from back in 1998. I don't know if he told me this. I can't remember if Brother Arnold told me this, or if it was another brother that told me this. But the rebuttal to that argument is still just as good today as it was when I first heard it. And this is the rebuttal. When somebody tells you that's ceremonial, now you have the law in your heart, you don't need a tassel, you ask them, do you believe that the Messiah had the law on his heart? Well, of course, if anybody was full of the Holy Spirit, it was the Master. More so than any person that has ever lived. There are a few texts that talks about that He had the Spirit without measure. He had the most of the Spirit that any man could hold. But do you know what? He still wore the tassels. He still wore the tassels. Do you think He could have remembered the law without the tassels? Well, sure He could have. But He still wore the tassels. (laughs) You know why? It was a commandment. And He was the unblemished Lamb. Think about that. Unblemished Lamb. That means without sin. He even was baptized by John. And John said, I need to be baptized by you. He said, allow it to be so for now. We must fulfill all righteousness, John. He had to do everything that was required by Yahweh. Unblemished Lamb. And some people say, well, why do you do the Passover? Don't you know Yeshua is our Passover? And that is true. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7-8 through 8 says that the Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Notice Paul doesn't say after that, therefore, we don't have to keep the feast. <laughs> he says, Messiah, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And there's a spiritual connotation of that. But anytime there's a spiritual, there's always a natural. The spiritual follows the natural. The problem with that understanding, though, when people say that Yeshua is our Passover now, they think that that does away with the natural Passover. Uh, it's no different than saying that now because Yeshua is our rest, now we don't have to keep the natural Sabbath. Or because Yahweh is my Father in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, I don't really have to honor my earthly Father. See, there's a natural and there's a spiritual. We don't want to do away with either. The spirit of the law and the letter of the law, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But Yeshua's sacrifice and what He did for us and His high priesthood in heaven now, in the heavenly tabernacle, is on a totally different plane than any sacrifice of an animal in the Scriptures. The animal sacrifices are good, but Yeshua's sacrifice is better. It's not that the animal sacrifices were bad. They had a purpose. They accomplished things. But they never, ever did what Yeshua did. Yeshua's sacrifice, His ministry and His priesthood enables us entrance into the heavenly tabernacle one day. And it gives us peace between us and Father Yahweh. The animal sacrifices and what they did enabled entrance into the earthly tabernacle and gave you peace with Yahweh as it pertains to your relationship in the here and now. Now, A lot of people don't understand that. Between Yeshua's death and resurrection and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., all of the earliest Hebrew or Jewish followers of Yeshua still obeyed all of the law, even the ceremonial law, while the temple still stood. So Yeshua died, was buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven, 
And then there was about a 40-year period before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And during that 40-year period, all of the earliest Hebrew followers of Yeshua still obeyed the ceremonial laws. They still obeyed what Yeshua had told him. They didn't think that He came to destroy the law or the prophets. See, There are things pertaining to the new covenant that are ceremonial. Have you ever thought about this? People get on to me for obeying laws in the Old Testament that are ceremonial. But there are laws in the new covenant that are ceremonial. Think about the Master's Supper. That is a ceremony. It is not literally Yeshua's blood that we're drinking and body that we're eating. But it is a symbol of it, and it's very serious. But it's a ceremony. But we still do that, right? Or what about baptism? There's so many verses in the New Testament that talk about how that we should be baptized into the Messiah. In other words, buried with Him, baptized into His death. But do we really think that our sins are hanging on our skin? And when we go under the water, the sins stay under the water. And when we come back up, they, they stay under the water. Of course, none of us believe that. We know better than that. It's a symbol. It's a ceremony. But it's a good thing and it's a command. So even some things in the New Covenant are ceremonial. They point to greater realities. But that doesn't make them insignificant or without meaning. They're shadows of greater things. And shadows are not always a bad thing. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says that the new moons and the Sabbaths and the feast days, annual feasts, are, are shadows of things to come. Right? But they've always been shadows. Ever since Moses and Aaron obeyed the feast days, they were shadows then. Could you imagine Moses looking at Aaron and saying, well, I wouldn't worry too much about this one because it's just a shadow. doesn't really matter. It's just a shadow, Aaron. No. A shadow of something to come... Why is the shadow cast? Because the reality is there. The reality is definitely greater, but it's casting the shadow. Shadow is not a bad thing. The shadow is a good thing. What about the laws that we don't keep? There are certain laws as we read through the Torah, and we try to do that slowly but surely every Sabbath. Right now I'm reading through Proverbs, but uh, Brother Dan was reading through Genesis before we had a break there. But we've went through the Torah several times over the last several years in this congregation. And sometimes we come across laws that we don't keep. And it's not because we don't want to keep these laws. It's because some laws we don't have the ability to obey because of our circumstance or our situation. Now, two points to this. The first point is sometimes people try to catch me. Maybe this has happened to you before. Because they find out that you're a law keeper and you believe in the commandments. And then they try to rustle through the pages of the Bible or Google something real quick with their thumbs and find this obscure law that you don't keep so that they can say, Aha! I got you. You don't keep this law. So, if somebody does that to me, and that's happened before, and I've actually had somebody approach me with that mentality, and you know what I answered them when they brought out a law that I had the ability to obey, but I wasn't obeying? My answer was simply, that's correct. That is a good law. And I've not gotten to that level yet. But I will keep praying and keep studying. And I will eventually be obedient to that commandment. Thank you for showing me a commandment that I'm not keeping. Because I want to do better in my service to Yahweh. And then their eyeballs get as big as Aggie Marbles. You know, 
Because they see, I'm, I'm not here to fight anybody, number one. And I'm not here to fight any commandment that Yahweh gives. Now let me tell you a little story about something that happened to Brother TJ. If you guys remember, me and Brother TJ were neighbors for about ten years. And I love Brother TJ. And if you're listening to this sermon, I love you, Brother TJ. And he is my best buddy. And um, I love him with all my heart. But he told me something. He's told me several things over the years that have made me laugh because he's funny. He's humorous. (laughs) And I like that. I like to laugh. So he called me up. I remember in his early days of, of studying the Torah, he would call me every day. What about this? What about this? What about this? One day he called me up. I don't think this has been too many years ago. I think it was maybe a few years before he moved down to the lake. And he said, I need, can you talk? I said, yeah, I can talk to you. I can stop what I'm doing and talk to TJ. And uh, he said, let me tell you about what just happened. He said, I just had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. Now, I love it when they come to my house. I love it. I know a lot of people say, oh, Lord, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> Somebody's knocking at your door. You know, those song. TJ said, we got to talk about the law. You know, because Jehovah's Witnesses mentality is that we're, we only have two commandments now. Did you know that? They, they believe we only have two commandments. And they say, love God and love your neighbor. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because when somebody tells me to love God, my immediate response is, how? How do I love him? When somebody says, love my neighbor, does that mean just have warm fuzzies? Does that mean I go out to Brother Jerry and hug him and just say, I love you, brother? Now, that's good to do, but love for your neighbor is what? Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, don't covet. That's how I love my neighbor. The same thing for Yahweh. Loving Yahweh is don't have other gods before him. Don't take his name in vain. Don't make idols. Remember the Sabbath day. See, So that's how we love Yahweh and love our neighbor. But Jehovah's Witnesses in their mind, they think it's just some kind of mental thing. Love God and love your neighbor. But Brother TJ told this nice Jehovah's Witness man, and I do love my Jehovah's Witness friends. I'm not speaking bad about them. I don't like it when I hear people talk bad about them. Um, they're usually more well-studied than your average Baptist or Pentecostal or Methodist. (laughs) So, before I meddle too much, TJ said, the guy asked him, he said, well, I bet I I know a law you don't keep. And TJ said, well, lay it on me. And he said, the guy started laughing. He said, I got you now. He said, I got you now. (laughs) TJ was telling me this on the phone. And and he said, well, I won't know unless you tell me. He said, said, this one, he said, it's going to get you. TJ said, what is it? And he said, the new moons. And TJ, TJ looked at me and he said, oh, we keep the new moons. <laughs> and I just laughed. That did my heart so good. And I, I just laugh now as I think about it. And TJ went over some scriptures with him about the new moons that are in the Bible like 60 times the new moon feast is in the scriptures. And uh, TJ said, it was so refreshing to be able to tell him that, not because he puffed up himself, but because the guy really took it to heart when he found out that this man that he randomly knocked on the door of actually practiced what he preached. He didn't just say he kept the commandments. He actually kept the commandments. Now that doesn't mean Brother TJ or Brother Matthew is perfect in the commandments. That's not what I'm talking about. Nobody's perfect in the commandments. But you can keep the commandments. 
Even within the law, there's a remedy for forgiveness. Yahweh gives us room to ask for forgiveness in the law, in the Torah. So He doesn't expect you to never sin, or else He wouldn't give you the remedy for your sin, right? So you can be a commandment keeper and not be sinless. And what, what commandment keeper means is that's, that's your lifestyle. That's what you practice. And so TJ said it really affected that Jehovah's Witness when he found out this man doesn't just spout off things. He really practices what he preaches. TJ got to talk to him about the calendar, the lunar calendar, the Sabbaths by the moon, the feast days. Talked to him about all of that. And he said the man was astonished. He was amazed. So praise Yahweh. TJ was obeying Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine among men so that others might see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Hallelujah. So for somebody to show us a law that we're not keeping, all that means is we have work to do and room to grow. But there are some laws that we can't keep, and it's not because they're destroyed, but it's because they don't apply to our being, our situation, or our circumstance. I hope that you grasp this because it's so important, especially as you witness and evangelize about the commandments. There are some laws in the Scripture that only apply to men. There are other laws in the Scripture that only apply to women. And maybe some laws that only apply to children. Now just because there is a law that is for the masculine gender doesn't mean that that law is destroyed for the feminine gender. It just means it doesn't apply to the female like it applies to the male and vice versa. For instance, in Leviticus 19.27, there's a law that only applies to us men where it talks about the sides of our head and the borders of our beard. Only applies to the masculine. But then there's laws about childbirth in Leviticus 12 that apply to the feminine gender. They apply to women. Or we might think about it like this. Let's say that a couple gets married, but they never have a son. Well, if they never have a son, they can't circumcise their son on the eighth day. Not because the law is destroyed, but simply because they don't have an application of that law. Now, I have three sons. We circumcised all three on the eighth day, as Genesis 17 commands us. I wanted them to take upon themselves the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, physical circumcision. But if I didn't have a son, I wouldn't have to obey that commandment. You kind of see what I'm saying? Let's say that you're a blacksmith or a carpenter back then, and you don't own any animals. You don't own any livestock. While you could give offerings to the tabernacle, which then would have been gold and silver, that was the monies back then, or even your labor as an offering, you cannot, if you don't have any livestock, you can't offer up the firstborn of your flock. Why? Because you don't have a flock. <laughs> you don't have a flock to offer them up. If you had a flock, you would offer up the firstborn of it. Okay? The same applies to certain aspects of what people call the ceremonial law. When it comes to things like the Levites, temple conduct, the Aaronic priesthood, I cannot obey a command that's given to the son of Aaron or to a Levite or that specifically applies to the tabernacle or the temple. Now you say, well, Brother Matthew, how do you know that you're not a Levite? I don't know, and that's the problem. Maybe one day in the kingdom, maybe I will be. Maybe I'll find out. That's why I had this strong desire to teach the law. It's because I have Levitical blood running through my veins. I don't know. I have no clue. But I don't know right now. So I can't obey a law that Yahweh specifically said, tell the sons of Aaron to do this. 
or do this at the tabernacle or do this at the temple. If there's no tabernacle or temple available, then I cannot obey that law. However, if there is a tabernacle or temple available, then I would obey that law if I had the ability to do so. I would do like Joseph and Miriam did when Miriam brought forth her firstborn son, the Christ child, Yeshua. And after the 40 days of purification were over with, according to the law in Leviticus 12, what did they do? They took a journey, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer or dedicate the firstborn to Yahweh. They dedicated Yeshua, the little baby, to Yahweh. As it's written in the law, all the firstborn shall be dedicated to me. They obeyed the law of Moses. The law of Yahweh through the mouth of Moses. Lepers had to follow certain laws. We talked about lepers a little bit earlier. But if you never contracted leprosy, guess what? Those laws don't apply to you. But if you did contract leprosy, you know what? Those laws would apply to you. So even back then, even under the old covenant, even when the tabernacle or the temple was standing, a son of a tribe of Issachar or Naphtali or Ephraim, they couldn't jump in and say, hey, move out of the way, son of Aaron. Move out of the way, son of Levi. I want to do the priesthood. As a matter of fact, there are cases in the Old Testament where some people from other tribes tried to butt in and do the priestly duties, and Yahweh reprimanded them. <laughs> they had to separate, in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, they had to separate some of those people from the nation. So it's very important to understand this. Uh, certain laws we're not able to obey, not because they have been destroyed, but simply because we don't have the ability to obey them. Now think about this in relation to somebody like Daniel in Babylon. Uh, Daniel could not keep the entire Torah while he was living in Babylon in a foreign country, but he did what he had the ability to do. You think Daniel went to the pilgrim feasts of Yahweh while he lived in Babylon? No. Jerusalem had been destroyed. Jerusalem was ransacked. Yahweh punished that city for disobedience. There was no feast. There was no songs. There was no shouting going on of joy for those 70 years that the Judahites and some of the Levites and then some of the other tribes sifted around. While they were in Babylon, there was nothing going on in, in Jerusalem, Israel, in that land until Yahweh brought them back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So Daniel, while living in Babylon, there were certain things he did obey. He didn't eat the king's meat. He wouldn't drink the king's wine. He wouldn't pray to anybody else except Yahweh. And then we had Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah that most people know them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But those are their heathen names. Those aren't their original names. And if you look, actually, and this is, I'll give you this for free. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when you look up those names, they glorify the names of false gods. But when you look up the name Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah, they glorify the name of the Mighty One of Israel. See, mm-hmm. So that was their birth names. And what did they do while they were in Babylon? They were told, when you hear the sound of the instruments, bow down to the great image in the statue. And they stood up. And they wouldn't bow. And they said, we're going to throw you into the furnace if you don't bow. And they said, well, our Mighty One is able to deliver us from the fires of the furnace. But even if He doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to the image that you've made. So they put, we know the story, they put it furnace seven times hotter and they threw Him in there 
And then all of a sudden the king said, I thought we only threw three men in the fire. But I see a fourth man that looks like one of the son of the gods. Because remember, he was Babylonian, so he thinks this is some demigod walking around in the fire with him. But Hosea chapter 12, verse 4 tells us, Yahweh sent an angel to protect Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. And when they came out of the fire, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. You know how difficult that is? I can start a little fire at the house and roast some marshmallows and my whole clothes will smell like smoke just, just by that. They were in this fire. They came out. It was a miracle. Don't try to explain it by science. It was a miracle that Yahweh performed Amen. whereby their dedication to Yahweh's law, even in a foreign country, gained them a reward of safety. It didn't always work out like that for Yahweh's children just because it's not always Yahweh's will to work out like that. Some people died for Yahweh's law in the Scriptures, and in history. And that's fine too. They gave their life for the commandments of Yahweh. That's fine too. But my point here is that Daniel and Babylon could not obey every law of the Torah, not because they were destroyed, but because of the circumstance and situation they were in. They did the best that they could do. Certain prophecies point to a future kingdom, a kingdom temple, and future Levites. You can read these in Jeremiah 33. Isaiah 66 and Malachi 3. For instance, in Malachi 3, 3 through 4, it says, Yahweh will purify the descendants of Levi as though they were gold or silver. Then they will bring the proper offerings to Yahweh and the offerings of the people of Judah and Jerusalem will please Him just as they did in the past. Now, I don't claim to understand everything about eschatology, which is the study of the last days or the end things. But I do see certain prophecies in Scripture that appear to me to be yet fulfilled in the future where there will be a temple, there will be an establishment of the Aaronic priesthood. And you say, why? And it's because their priestly duties and the temple duties and the sacrificial things that pertain to the earth don't get in the way of the things that are going on in heaven because they're two separate planes, two separate playing fields. The one in heaven will always be better than the one on earth. The tabernacle on earth that Yahweh commanded Moses to build was a pattern. He told him in Exodus, make the earthly tabernacle according to the pattern that I showed you while you were on the mountain with me. Where's the pattern? Up in heaven. The heavenly tabernacle. Yeshua, the book of Hebrews calls Yeshua a high priest. He's our high priest. Where is he performing his priestly duties? Not on earth. In heaven. Hebrews says if he were on earth, he couldn't be a priest. Why? Because he's not a Levite. But in heaven, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, Hebrews chapter 7. So, all of this is so beautiful. So, what I tell people to do is this. When you read and study the Bible, don't fight any commandment. Any commandment that you see that you can't obey or that doesn't apply to you is still a good commandment. And any commandment that you read that you can obey... Obey it. Obey it. Don't fight it. Obey it. Whether it be the tassels, or whether it be do not steal. Whether it be the Passover, or whether it be do not covet. If you read a commandment that you have the ability to obey, you obey it. You say, well, Brother Matthew, what if I sin against it? What if I mess up? You're going to mess up. I'm not giving you permission to fail. You don't need permission to fail. (laughs) We've all sinned and fallen short of Yahweh's glory. We all have to ask for forgiveness. Psalm 103 says He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. If He dealt with us as our sins deserve, none of us will be sitting here right now. We're sitting here by the cause of the grace and the mercy of Yahweh. Just keep the commandments. When you find one that you're not obeying, say, 
Yahweh, forgive me. I want to do better. And you'll grow in not just grace, you'll grow in knowledge and obedience. On to the next section here of the sermon about least in the kingdom. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I think it's self-explanatory. Remember last week I taught about the view that least in the kingdom means you're in the kingdom, but you're at a lower rank because you loosened some of the small commandments. And I think that's probably the best way to understand that. But some people think least in the kingdom means you'll never enter the kingdom. And the reason they think that is because they feel that verse 20 is an explanation of least in the kingdom in verse 19. In verse 20 it says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, there is no way you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So people say that is a commentary on verse 19. I think 19 and 20 give us three categories of people. The least in the kingdom, the greatest in the kingdom, and the people that will never enter the kingdom. I think that's a third category of people. But in this view, that least in the kingdom means you won't be there, the word break in verse 19 would be seen not as loosen, as I explained last week, but unrepentant sin. Which, by the way, will keep a person out of the kingdom. Unrepentant sin. Now, there's a difference between a repentant sinner and an unrepentant sinner. There are people who commit sin that are believers, and as soon as they commit the sin, they're sorrowful, and they cry, and they repent, and they strive to do better. There are other people that commit sin as though they're drinking down a glass of water. And Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 give us a list of sins, a list of vices. And it says, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom. So that is unrepentant sin. You say, well, Brother Matthew, I thought the reason we don't make it to the kingdom is lack of faith in Christ. That is true. But faith in, lack of faith in Christ or a denial of Christ is shown by your actions. Just like an acceptance of Christ is shown by your good works, a denial of Christ is shown by your bad works. So Paul wrote, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Certain sins, if you break, if you practice these sins, in other words, you're unrepentantly breaking the law, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, I believe both of these views, I believe that there will be levels in the kingdom based on works, but I also believe that people that commit and practice unrepentant sin will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. But I lean more towards verse 19, being least in the kingdom means you'll be there, but have a lower rank. I lean towards that, due to the understanding that I talked about, the cultural meaning of destroy and fulfill. Just briefly, remember destroy in rabbinical terms meant you misinterpreted a commandment, thereby loosened its effect upon society. Fulfill means you interpreted it properly so that everybody listening to your proper interpretation can now fulfill that commandment in obedience to Yahweh. So I think that that goes along with verse 19. And verse 20 talks about a separate people that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Last point for today. How can our righteousness exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Once again, verse 24, I tell you, this is the Master speaking, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, there is no way you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's very popular to read this verse in... Christian circles and say this is talking about the imputed righteousness of the Messiah. In other words, when we're forgiven of our sin, there's a doctrine in Christianity that says that not only is our slate wiped clean, but we're filled with the perfect righteousness of the Messiah. 
And I don't so much have a problem with that doctrine. I don't so much have a problem with that at all. And that Yahweh sees us now clean by the blood of the Lamb. But I have a problem with trying to use that doctrine as an excuse to continue in sin, that grace may abound. And I also have a problem with trying to say that that's what verse 20 is talking about here. Because I don't see anywhere in the context of Matthew 5 that Yeshua is talking about His imputed righteousness. Now, salvation and justification does lead to holiness and sanctification. Justification means a declaration of innocence in the courtroom of Yahweh. Sanctification means you become more holy, more set apart in what you practice. Faith leads to works. So our practical righteousness, what we do, how we obey, is based upon what Yahweh has done for us on the inside. The reason that we do good works is because Yahweh has changed us from a hater of His law into a lover of His law. I'm not denying that. I believe in that. Okay, But this righteousness in verse 20 is still practical. It's about what we do and how we behave. Our righteousness, practical righteousness, our works. James 2, uh, 14 through 22, I think it is. According to Yeshua, if we do not behave better than the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe this is the man in Luke 19 who hid his talent. He, gave, he was given one mina or one talent. And Yeshua got back and He said, How did you do? And He said, Well, I hid it. Here it is. Yeshua said, You wicked and slothful servant. That was not good. Take his talent and give it to the one with ten. Sometimes we get tired of doing what Yahweh has called us to do. Sometimes we have gifts and talents that Yahweh has blessed us with. And we get tired. But we must keep pressing on. Amen. And listen, it's not just you that gets tired. It's pastors too. Sometimes I get tired of what I do. That's just the truth. Sometimes I feel like it's not making an effect. Sometimes I wonder who's listening, who's hearing, who's seeing the Scriptures. And I think that's either my flesh trying to deceive me or it could be the devil himself or one of his minions. Don't grow weary in doing good, brothers and sisters. For in due season, you will reap if you do not faint. You will. Both of these groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, were highly learned in the law of Moses. Oftentimes, they were members or associated with the Sanhedrin, the council of elders. They spent all of their time studying and discussing how to obey the Torah. A scribe literally was a recorder or a writer Speaking of copying the Torah or writing commentary about the Torah, his own or one that someone dictated to him. But the word scribe came to be used in the Second Temple period of a very learned Hebrew man. A Pharisee was a group in Judaism. It comes from the Hebrew word perashim and it means a separatist. And they called themselves separatists because they believed they were the most separated from the world out of any group in the Hebrew faith. We're the best. We're the greatest. We're the holiest. So for Yeshua to use them in comparison in Matthew 5 verse 20 must mean they held some form of righteousness. They had some kind of righteousness. Because He says, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter in the kingdom of heaven. 
So how can our righteousness be less than or exceed their righteousness? How can we be lesser righteous or more righteous than a scribe and a Pharisee in the first century? I believe it's by obeying the letter of the law plus the spirit of the law versus only looking to the letter of the law. Now, I pulled up this cartoon from a comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if it's original or if somebody filled in some of the words, but it's funny nonetheless. So going from left to right, the mom says, goodness, you're filthy into the tub with you. And Calvin jumps in the tub and he says, I obey the letter of the law, not the spirit. He's just sitting there in the tub, no water, no wash rag. He's not bathing himself. And the mama screams up the steps, let's hear some water running. And then he says, nuts, oh man, she caught me. So little Calvin obeyed the letter of the law, right? His mama just said, into the tub. And he would say, mama, you just told me into the tub. And all the mamas and us daddies would get very upset because we'd say, you know what I meant. You know what I meant when I said into the tub. So I believe that our righteousness either falling short than or greater than the scribes and the Pharisees has to do with the letter and the spirit of the law. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the particulars of the law that we miss the intent and the motive of the commandment. We miss the spirit of the commandment because we're so focused on the letter of the commandment. And sometimes we can obey the letter of the commandment and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're keeping the commandment. But the entire time we're rejecting the spirit of the commandment. This is what we're going to begin to talk about next week. And we're going to start off with do not murder. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but just to give you a taste here. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't going around murdering to anybody. They had not committed murder. But what they did have in their hearts was hatred toward their brother. The command do not murder doesn't just mean you have to physically murder someone to break the commandment. But if I have hatred in my heart toward my brother or my sister, I could be a murderer in my heart. And Yeshua was challenging them. You obey the letter, but not the Spirit. You look holy, but you're not holy inside. So what do we want to be? Do we want to be holy as it just pertains to the eyes of men? And go around and not murder and not commit adultery and not steal the physical acts? Or do we want to be holy in the eyes of Yahweh whereby we do obey the letter, but we also love people in our heart? We don't lust in our heart? We don't covet what our neighbor has? These are things that pertain to the spirit of the law. The intention of the law. The remainder of Matthew chapter 5 deals with the way that many scribes and Pharisees interpreted the law versus the way that Yeshua interpreted the law. Yeshua is not destroying old law in Matthew 5. And He is not adding new law. But He's properly interpreting old law. And He's focusing on the spirit of the law while not neglecting the letter of the law. So when he says, you've heard that it hath been said by them of old time, what that means is, this is how the scribes and Pharisees have interpreted this law for many years. 
But I say unto you, now He's going to give you the true interpretation. And He's going to peel that letter back and show that the Spirit of the law is behind it. And if you claim to obey the letter, but you don't obey the Spirit, you're just a scribe or a Pharisee, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to have a heart change. You have to have a mind change. You can focus on the letter so much that you miss the Spirit. Our righteousness must go beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. We must recognize that going to get in the bathtub, remember the cartoon? Doesn't just mean to go and see it in the bathtub. We know what Mama meant. Let me give you one example of this as I close. In Luke chapter 13, Yeshua healed a woman on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day, the word Sabbath means rest or intermission. It's a day of no work, no buying, no selling. It's a pause. Everybody pauses. This woman had been stooped over for 18 years. Yeshua said she was bound by Satan. And she hadn't been able to straighten up her back for 18 years. And he was at a house meeting on the Sabbath. And he saw this woman. And he healed this woman. He loosed her from her bondage of Satan. And she got up. Could you imagine how good she felt? Whew! (laughs) 18 years I've been bent over. Now I can stand up. Okay, maybe you are the Messiah. (laughs) Well, there was a Jewish leader here at the house and he complained. He got upset with Yeshua. He said, hey, whoa, whoa, we got six days to do that, buddy. He got six days to come and be healed, the six work days. He said, don't do that on the Sabbath day. And Yeshua said, oh my goodness. He said, which one of you guys on the Sabbath day don't go out to your pasture and unloose your animal from the rope and let him go down to the water to drink? He says, shall not also this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from her bondage on the Sabbath day? See how he argued from the lesser to the greater? We should take care of our animals. Amen. The righteous man or woman takes care of their animals. But how much more? If we're to take care of our animals, how much more should we take care of human beings? That's what Yeshua is saying. You're taking care of your animals, but you think that this woman needs to remain stooped over and it's the Sabbath day? Nah. I'm going to give her a healing. And she stands up straight. Was the Sabbath... Here's the thing. Was the Sabbath law put into place to prevent healings and good things from taking place on that day. Was that why Yahweh gave us the Sabbath? No. Yeshua says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The meaning of that is the Sabbath was put here to bless man. He gives us a day off of work because He knows that Brother Matthew would work seven days if it wasn't for the Sabbath because I take after my dad. And I'm a workaholic. And I like to get stuff done. But when the Sabbath comes around, everything, I like what Brother Dan says, we take the thing, we unplug 24 hours. And afterwards, we plug back in. So, the Sabbath was put here to bless us. But the Sabbath, Yahweh didn't give us the Sabbath so that we wouldn't have a healing on the Sabbath. Or so that a doctor couldn't mend a little boy's arm if it broke on the Sabbath. Or that if your child fell into the well on the Sabbath that you couldn't get the child out of the well. Or if something mishapped on the Sabbath that you couldn't take care of it. That's not why Yahweh gave us the Sabbath. Yahweh gave us the Sabbath to rest and to put our mind on Him. Not that we shouldn't rest every night or keep our mind on Him at all times, but there's one day that He gives us. 
one day. Just think, what if He would have required six days and told us just to work one day, but keep Sabbath for six days? But He didn't. He gave us six days to do our labor and our work. But He only says one day to rest. But in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, Yeshua was a Sabbath breaker. John chapter 5, verse 17 actually says that Yeshua broke the Sabbath. It does. John 5, 17. Some people have used that against me. But the context, read the context. It's speaking of in the mind of the Pharisees He broke the Sabbath. Not in the mind of Yahweh. So Yeshua did not break the Sabbath when He healed this lady. When He healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, He didn't break the Sabbath. He recognized the spirit of the Sabbath was rest and giving healing to hurting people was giving them rest. Letting that lady that had been stooped over for 18 years straighten up her back and say, oh, there's no more pain. That was rest for that lady. That was rest. Hallelujah. I got cold chills just thinking about it. So, a couple examples. Maybe we're headed to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is what this is, or the church. You can call it either one. The assembly of people. And maybe I'm heading to church on the Sabbath and all of a sudden I see Brother Ron and he's broke down. And he's got a flat tire and he's out there and he's scratching his head and he's got his lug wrench out there. And I roll my window down and I just pass by and I say, I'd help you, Brother Ron, but it's the Sabbath. He looks at me and I'm going to church and he wants to go. That's why he's in his car. Not because he's being frivolous. Because he wants to come to church. What would, I, what, would I, what would be the right thing for me to do? Stop and help. Pick him up or change his tire for him. That would be the right thing for me to do. And vice versa. If Brother Ron saw me, not say, well, it's the Sabbath. I can't help you. can't help you. It's the Sabbath. No, that's, that's violating the spirit or the intent of the Sabbath. Or maybe our friend is in the hospital. I had a friend of mine that was in the hospital. And... A lot of times I would go see him on the Sabbath. That wasn't the only day that I would go to see him. But it is one day that I would go to see him on the Sabbath. And I would have to pay to park in the parking deck on the Sabbath. And some people would think I was sinning by doing that. But when I paid to park on the Sabbath, I wasn't paying because it was something of my flesh. I wasn't paying that money because I wanted to do something against Yahweh's will. I paid so I could see it with my friend at the hospital and spend time with him. You see what I'm saying? That's not a violation of the Sabbath. Now, if I was out doing my mundane thing, playing the arcade or, or whatever have you, and that, I don't know why that came to my mind. <laughs> but if I was out doing my own thing on the Sabbath, then that would be a sin. That would be a sin to buy on the Sabbath. Let me give you an opposite example. Because I don't want anybody to take this sermon and think we can neglect the Sabbath. To neglect the Sabbath and not prepare for it and then put yourself in a bind is not your ox in the ditch. Some brothers have told me throughout the years, they, I said, well, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And they said, well, my ox is in the ditch. And I said, you put your ox in that ditch, brother. And they smiled because they knew that it was right. Sometimes our ox does get in the ditch. I had a brother one time whose water heater went out on the Sabbath and it was flooding everything. And he said, I had to, Brother Matthew. Well, we didn't make it to the congregation because it happened right before Sabbath service. And I had to clean it up. He said, but I just cleaned it up with the towels and I just set the towels in the washroom. I didn't start them in the washing machine because I had to clean up what was there, but I didn't have to wash them towels on the Sabbath. I said, I think that's good. 
I think that's good. So that's an ox in the ditch. That's something that you don't prepare for. Sometimes though we put our ox in the ditch. Sometimes we get so busy working on preparation day. Why is it called preparation day? Because we're supposed to prepare for the Sabbath. Right? Now you could prepare a little bit all six days, but the sixth day of the week in Scripture is called the day of preparation. Preparation for what? The Holy Shabbat. So, we neglect to prepare. Let's say we get so busy and we forget to get gas in our car. Because we weren't as concerned about the Sabbath as we were about making a dollar. It could happen. And then the next day we got to go to church and we got to get gasoline in our car. Now, is that a sin, Brother Matthew? Yes, that's a sin. It's a sin to buy and sell like that on the Sabbath day. Now, in that case, it could happen where you neglected it. But what you should do in that case is if you have to buy gas to get to the Sabbath service, what you should do is say, Yahweh, I'm sorry. I should have paid more attention on preparation day and got this done and not neglected to prepare. Please forgive me. I will strive not to do it again. See what I'm saying? That would be the right attitude to have. The wrong attitude would be, ah, it's no big deal. I've got to go to church anyway. And you hang the gas up, and then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then it gets easier to do it. And then you do it, and it doesn't matter. And then you get gas, and then you go in and get you a Coca-Cola. Or something like that. Yahweh says, the law says, Nehemiah 13, no buying, no selling on the Sabbath day. No commerce. See? So we don't want to neglect the letter. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were good at keeping the letter of the law. They were bad at keeping the spirit of the law. But a lot of modern day Christians, catch this, they're good at the spirit and not so good at the letter. (laughs) We want the letter and the spirit, not one or the other. Are you tracking with me? I know I went a little long today, but I like to teach the Bible. I get excited. Hopefully I didn't lose your attention. So we'll begin next week looking at these contrasting interpretations in Matthew 5, and we'll start with do not murder. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then one of the brothers will come and take testimonies. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. I love You. I love Your commandments. I love Your Son. Thank You for sending us Your Son, so that we may be forgiven of our transgressions against the law. Thank You, Yeshua, for being our High Priest and bringing us peace between us and Father Yahweh. I pray all these things to you, Yahweh, through your Son, Yeshua. Amen.